6, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, you know that after the two days, after two days is the Passover and the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant saying, why this waste for this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me, you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, whereas Wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through this text. God, that we would be able to identify it, that you would pierce our our hearts, Lord, that you would challenge us in the areas that you need to challenge us, that we would look at the good examples in the text and the bad examples. And Lord, we would uh, purpose to to learn from this, that you would truly change us from the inside out just by studying your word, because we know you do that. You pierce hearts, you change hearts, you transform minds uh, just from being in your word, God. So uh, we know that that won't happen without your spirit. So we ask for your spirit to 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 fill us and and guide us and direct us as we study this passage in jesus name amen all right so what we see here uh, among other things in matthew chapter 26 verses 1 to 16 is this contrasting thing that's going on between mary that's the woman i'll tell you how i know that it's in john 12 we'll talk about it later but we see mary worshiping the Lord, giving him her all, then we see Judas trying to get whatever he can from Jesus, okay? That's what Matthew is trying to show us, among other things. So the title of this teaching is Grateful Givers and Greedy Takers. Grateful givers and greedy takers. We'll see Mary as this grateful giver pouring out this costly oil on the Lord, anointing him for his burial. Then on the other hand, we see Judas just trying to get anything he can from the Lord. If you will with me, Matthew chapter 26, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover and the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. I cannot tell you how many times Jesus told the disciples he would be crucified. It was one of his primary messages to his disciples. He told them time and time again, Jesus, through his crucifixion, as we'll discuss here in a moment, He did this. He gave us his all. He was crucified for us in hopes that we would give him our all, which is the first point. Point number one, give him your all because he gave you his all. Give him your all because he gave you his all. That's what he did when he was crucified. And that's the message that he's trying to get across to the disciples. Not just that he would be crucified and letting them know what was going to happen, but the implications surrounding the crucifixion. I think especially in American culture, we think crucifixion and we think, great, forgiven for my sins. That's it. But that's not the fullness of what the crucifixion was. It means so much more than that. And the Bible actually challenges us to consider the crucifixion, to really think about it, to really meditate on it. Let me show you in Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, the author of Hebrews says, starting in verse 2, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. We see the author of Hebrews is telling us the cross 
means more than just forgiveness. It, it even means a source of motivation so that you don't grow weary and discouraged in your souls. If you're growing weary, if you're feeling weak, if you feel like giving in, feel like giving up, consider the cross. Consider what Jesus did. Consider what he endured for you with joy because of love. Again, there are so many more implications when you look at the cross, and I just want to name a few. It's not just about our forgiveness. When Jesus died on the cross, yes, he did it to forgive us of our sins, but he also did it to solve the pro- uh, problem of suffering once and for all. Every single individual on the face of the earth at some point in their lives, more often, uh, more than once, they ask themselves, why am I suffering? Or why is there suffering in the world? Everyone asks that. But that question is a relational question. That question is wrapped around the idea, how could a good God allow suffering in this world? Why is this happening? Jesus came to solve the problem of suffering once for all. See, God didn't just give us a logical, reasonable answer for suffering in this world. Though he does do that, he gave us the answer through a person. And that person was Jesus Christ. Think about this. God came in the flesh. The one that created Mary's womb came through Mary's womb. That's like crazy. He created her and he came through her. And he came through her not just to suffer for us, but to suffer with us. When we think what Jesus endured through his earthly ministry, it was unbearable. Think about the things. He, he suffered sorrow. He suffered grief. He suffered betrayal from one of his best friends. Really, all of his friends betrayed him in one sense or another. He suffered abandonment. Abandonment even from his father for a moment in time. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says that we have a high priest that can identify, that can sympathize with us. He was tempted in all ways like us. He went through the same things that we went through. Everything we go through in our life, Jesus faced some form of that in his life. He didn't just come to suffer for us. He came to suffer with us. And that act of suffering on the cross, well, that actually redefines suffering. He redefined suffering for us. It's not something any longer biblically that we're something to, something, that's something that we're supposed to fear. It's something that we're called to embrace. That's why he calls pick up your cross. Now that's something in our minds that's like, what? Embrace suffering? But that's what Jesus taught us through the cross. See, suffering now, it's no longer something that I fear. It's no longer something that I don't have an answer for. It's something that I embrace because it's an avenue by which God raises children. God uses suffering to mold us, to shape us. And we see that through what Jesus did on the cross. So he redefined suffering. He, he redefined love. He came to suffer for us, but he also came to suffer with us. To, to, to teach us what suffering is all about. And, and even now to this day, he's intimately involved with our suffering. He's not absent from it. He's involved in it. Anything and everything we walk through, he's there. He wants to be there. Now, when we just think of some things, and there's a hundred more different things we can consider with the cross, but when we consider some of these things and what Jesus actually did on the cross, it should produce something in us. Who's seen the passion of the Christ? Probably everyone in this room, pretty much, right? The passion of the Christ, when you watch that, does it not do something to you? Before I was a believer, uh, before I was a Christian, I watched the passion of the Christ a couple times and it would tug on. I'd be bawling, I'd be weeping. I didn't know why because I didn't really believe, but it compelled me to want to do something. If this God is real, if he really laid down his life for the things that I've done bad, for my personal sins, Man, this is a pretty good God. And his love displayed on the cross is to produce just that. Because he gave his life for us, he desires that we give our life to him. It's not just to forgive us. The cross was an invitation. It was to invite us into a relationship with him. It wasn't just to wipe away our sins. It was to wipe away our sins so that we could be in communion with him. The cross was an invitation. It was an invitation to give him our all. And we see that 
In Romans chapter 12, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service or reasonable act of worship in the Greek. It's that word proskuneo. Our, our reasonable act of service, when, when we consider the cross and what he has done, our, the only reasonable thing is to give him our all, is, is to put our lives on the line, to give him every single aspect of our life. That's the reasonable act of service. And we're going to see Mary do that, do just that here in a little bit. But continuing on, back to Matthew chapter 26, Jesus tells them, exactly when this was going to happen he says you know that after two days is the passover what's going to happen on the passover the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified he told them exactly what was going to happen and even when it was going to happen and they still didn't get it they were still thrown off they stumbled on i don't get it though jesus told us this so many different times i don't understand see sometimes The Lord speaks very plainly, very clearly, very obviously to us. And we don't get it. We don't hear it. I'm hearing it, but I'm not hearing it. Yeah, he's speaking, but it's just going through one ear and out the other. It's not enough for us to hear it. We got to get it. We got to capture it. We got to understand it. Many people heard Jesus speak. In fact, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives us the reason why he spoke in parables and he quotes Isaiah. He says this, Matthew 13, verse 13, therefore I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, hearing you will hear and shall not understand and seeing you will see and not perceive for the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their hearts are hard of hearing and their eyes have been closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their hearts, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Jesus isn't saying I'm speaking and I'm speaking in secret because I don't want them to hear. They're hearing me, but they don't want to hear me. They, they don't want to receive this. They don't want to receive the truth that I'm trying to deliver them. I'm trying to deliver them truth to set them free and to heal them, but they don't want to hear it. And sometimes we can do this too. Jesus can be speaking so plainly, so obviously to us for our own benefit, and we close our ears. That's why it says in Revelation chapter 2, verse 29, Revelation chapter 2, verse 29, it says, He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Why? Because we need the spiritual ears. It's not just the physical ears. We need the spiritual ears to not just hear what the Lord is saying, but understand what He's saying. The disciples hear Him, but they're not hearing Him. They're they're not understanding what He's saying. Are you hearing Him? Are you understanding what he's telling you? Has he been telling you something time and time again? And you're hearing him, but you're not hearing him. We do this. The disciples did it. It's important for us not just to hear him, but receive what he's trying to get across to us. He told them the exact day that this would happen on and they didn't get it. They weren't hearing him, even though they heard him. Look what happens. Verse three. So. Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. Okay, so Caiaphas is leading this plot to kill Jesus, which we'll talk in a moment. But uh, often when you read the New Testament, uh, you'll see another high priest uh, that, uh, that, that they talk about, and his name is Annas. That's A-N-N-A-S. Now, uh, Annas was the high priest, and then 15 in 15 AD, uh, Rome basically took him out of power and replaced him with Caiaphas. Okay, that's not how things were supposed to go. Okay, you carried a lineage way back from Aaron of the people who were supposed to be high priests. You weren't just supposed to kick one out and replace him with another. That was the Lord's job. But Rome took that into their hands. Why? Because Annas wasn't acting like they wanted him to. So they put in power Caiaphas, who they kind of had him wrapped around their finger. He could get Caiaphas essentially to do what 
they wanted. So they replaced Annas with Caiaphas. The reason I tell you this is because you'll see at this time period, Annas is often referred to as the high priest as well because he technically was, but in a really non-legitimate way, Annas was taken out of power, Caiaphas was put in power. Okay, So you'll see both of them referenced as high priests. What's interesting about this is not only is Caiaphas leading this plot to kill Jesus, We know this obviously happens, it's fulfilled, but in 35 AD, Caiaphas kills himself. He kills himself because he can't bear the weight with the decision that he made, that he was one of the leaders in making this decision to crucify Jesus, and that's true for anyone. Anyone who every, and everyone who condemns the Lord, who betrays the Lord, who walks away from the Lord, they can't live with themselves. They can't live with that. He couldn't live with this. So they, they make this plot, right? It says in verse 4, and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. This was normal. They constantly plotted against him. And there was other times that they wanted to kill him and they tried to stone him on different occasions. But it's interesting that it's come to this because the uh, religious leaders, typically, they would make these plots against Jesus, which were verbal arguments. They would try to get Jesus to stumble in his words, and they'd always walk away looking foolish. They would always walk, walk away looking not intelligent, okay, to say in kind, kind words. And we actually see the last time they tried to do this, they tried to make Jesus stumble by asking, uh, asking him, if you will, with me, Matthew chapter 22. They ask him what the greatest commandment is. Because what they're trying to do, we talked about this a couple months ago, they're trying to get Jesus to say one area of the law is more important than the other. But he answers the question perfectly. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then Jesus says, I have a question for you, the son of David. Whose son is he? He's trying to lead them to the truth that the Messiah was more than just a man that was birthed through the lineage of David. He was a man born of God. And he references Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, literally God said to my God. That's that's what the words actually mean there. Anyways, after Jesus stumbled them once again, look what it says in verse 46. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. They gave up. The religious leaders realized there's no way I'm going to win an argument or a battle of words with Jesus Christ. He's too good at communicating. And there was no way because he is the truth. So he can never stumble on his words. They can no longer get him to stumble in his speech when an argument of words. So they take matters into a different direction. Now we're going to kill him. There's nothing else we can do. He's threatened our authority. He's constantly making us look like fools. We can't deal with this any longer. Our power is on the line. We must kill him. So this is what this plot was all about. And it says in verse 5, But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So their whole plan was to not kill Jesus during the Passover. But Jesus just said, they're going to kill me during the Passover. The very thing that they planned not to do, they did. Why? Because they're not in control here. Jesus is ultimately in control. Since the beginning of time, the Lord was always meant to be the Passover lamb. That was God's plan from the beginning. He, He knew this was going to happen. And so, again, the very thing that they tried not to do, they did. They would kill him on Passover. And it says in verse 6, And when Jesus was in Bethany... At the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. Now, Jesus goes to Bethany, which is two miles outside of Jerusalem. Now, Bethany literally means house of affliction. It's as if Jesus is dwelling in his affliction. He knows exactly what's going to happen, what's right around the corner, that he will be crucified. So he goes to this man named Simon's house, Simon the leper. Well, this is interesting because you wouldn't have a leper colony that close to the main city, that close to Jerusalem. So Simon the leper is likely, based on the text, a leper that Jesus had healed. 
a leper that Jesus had taken care of, that he healed from leprosy. And this man, he's living in Bethany. So Simon the leper, he invites Jesus into his home. Now, inviting someone into your home, especially in that culture, this was a very intimate thing to do. Now, they had hospitality on another level. They do still do for the most part. But what Simon the leper was doing is essentially inviting Jesus into his life. Have you invited Jesus into your home? Is he part of your family? Is he part of your everyday routine? Or is he just an acquaintance you see on Sundays? Is he just, uh, eh, I know Jesus in this capacity on Sunday or when I pray occasionally or when I'm really going through a hard time? Or is he part of the family? Is he part of your life? Because he wants to be intimately involved in every aspect of your life. See. Simon the leper, he invited Jesus to be in every aspect of his life. He, he wanted Jesus to be intimately involved with his life, in his life. And the Lord, he desires to be intimately involved in each and every one of our lives. For the believer and for the non-believer. That's why he says in Revelation chapter 3 verse 20, if you want to write it down, Revelation 3 20, he says, I stand at the door and knock. Now, this was a church that he's speaking to, but a church that had essentially kicked Jesus out of the church. This is the church of the Laodiceans, not the church of Christ at Laodicea. This was their own thing they had going on, and Jesus wasn't a part of it. He says, I'm, I'm standing at the door and knocking. Why? They kicked him, kicked him out of the church. It's essentially what we do when we don't invite him to be a part of every aspect of our lives. You can be a part of this part. You, you can be a part of, of my church life and my Christian life, but I have this other life. I don't want you to be a part of my marriage. I don't want you to be a part of my parenting. I don't want you to be a part of my job. Be a part of this, but not that. That's not what he's asking. He's asking to be involved in every single aspect of our life. That's what it really means to invite him in every, even the dark areas, even the areas you don't know, want him to know about. He wants to be involved in that capacity as well. So Simon the leper invites him into his home. He comes into Simon's house and this extraordinary event happens. This woman, it says, verse 7, came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. Now we know... From John chapter 12, he talks about the same story. We'll reference it later uh, again. But this was Mary, okay? The sister of Martha. And Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they all lived in Bethany, okay? So Mary is the one that anoints his head with oil. But look what it says here. It says this was very costly, fragrant oil. Many scholars suggest that this was about a year's worth of wages. She's literally laying a year's worth of wages... On the Lord's head or at his feet, if you will. See, Mary understood something. She understood that giving Jesus her all was going to be costly. And that's the second point. Giving Jesus our all is costly. Giving Jesus our all is costly. This is referenced throughout the Bible that our relationship with God Yes, there's so much to gain, but there's also so much to lose. In fact, David says in Second Samuel chapter 24, verse 24, he says, I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which cost me nothing. He says, nor will I offer burnt offerings. In other words, I'm not going to give God something that doesn't cost me anything. The sacrifices that, that the Lord desires, yes, a broken, a contrite spirit. The relationship with God that he calls us to, it costs us, us something. Living for Jesus is costly. If we're living a Christianity that doesn't cost us something, then we're not living a biblical Christianity. That, that, that's the bottom line. The Bible tells us this time and time again. Our Christian life, our relationship with Jesus is going to cost us something. It costs the disciples their lives. Other than John, and he didn't have it very good. He was burned alive in oil and exiled to Patmos. It costs all of them. It's supposed to cost us too. In fact, Jesus tells us this. In Luke chapter 14, this call to discipleship, which is essentially the call to every, every believer to follow Jesus Christ. 
he poses the question, have you counted the cost? And he says, in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is not saying you need to hate your family, okay? What he's saying is you need to love me more than anyone. You need to love me more than everyone. You need to love me more than anything. I have to be at the head. I have to be at the throne and everything else secondary to that. And this wasn't something Jesus was just asking us to do. This is something that he did. He forsook his family. In fact, his family didn't even believe in him until after the resurrection. Anyways, look what else he says here in Luke chapter 14, verse 27. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest afterward he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish. All who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for peace, asks conditions for peace. So likewise, whoever does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple, he says. Count the cost of following me. What's the cost? It's going to cost you everything. So he says, it's going to cost, be willing for it to cost you everything. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus is going to take your family away and your job away and your car and your house and all these different things. But live with the expectation that that none of these things are my own to begin with. And I have to be willing to give up these things because living for Jesus is costly. What he's saying is, don't set your hand to the plow and and look back. Finish what you started. If you started following Jesus, keep following Jesus. Very few people, I think, understand that. Maybe even myself, when I first got saved, he's asking me for everything. My whole entire life, it's going to cost me. But the amazing thing about this is, look at Matthew chapter 19. We studied this a little while back. This is the conversation right after Jesus had with the rich young ruler. And remember, he asked him, he says, sell all your goods and give it to the poor. That's going to, what it's going to take for you to be accepted into the kingdom of heaven. So Peter, obviously, loud mouth, he's like, I got to say something here, right? And he says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 27, then Peter answered and said to him, see, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? What are we going to get for forsaking all and following you? And Jesus answers him in verse 28. He says, assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the son of man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. He says, whatever you think you're giving up in this life, you're going to get a hundredfold more in the next life. And I can tell you personally, the Lord's asked me to forsake many of these things. I've had to forsake my family. I've had to forsake different homes at different time periods. And, and the truth of the matter is, I don't regret any of it. The way the Lord has worked in my life and the blessings that he's bestowed on my life for forsaking all. And I'm not saying I've forsaken every single thing that the Lord's ever asked me to forsake. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is when we choose to forsake the things that he's asking us to forsake, not saying walk away from your family because you read it. If Jesus says, hey, go on a mission trip or do this or do that, or you need to give this thing up. When we choose to do those things, not only do we benefit in this world, but he says you're going to get a hundredfold in the world to come. When we get to heaven, we're not going to be like, oh man, I gave up that, that, that friendship or uh, I left my family for all those years or, or whatever the case may be. No, we're going to be like, oh my gosh. I thought I was losing something, but Jesus was trying to give me something, trying to give me something so much more. See, Mary, Mary counted the cost. She was sold out for Jesus despite the cost. That's why she pours this oil. Many people think this was her dowry. So it's almost as if she's giving up the hope of marriage just for Jesus in this moment. Now, that doesn't technically mean that just because she didn't have a dowry doesn't mean uh, it doesn't mean that she couldn't get married. 
But this is basically what she's expressing, expressing here. She's giving Jesus her all. And so she pours this fragrant oil on his head. Now, throughout the Bible, we see people were often anointed with oil, but it wasn't just any people. It was often kings and priests. Kings were anointed with oil. We see it with Saul. We see it with David. Priests were also anointed with oil. These were, this was a big deal. And we see Jesus being anointed with oil. It applies both, both to the fact that he was the king of kings, Lord of lords, and also he's the high priest of high priests. But as we'll see in this text, this anointing wasn't because he was a king. It wasn't because he was the high priest of high priests. He says, she did this for my burial. She knew somehow or understood or, or maybe guessed that this was for his burial, which we'll talk about here in a moment. But look at Matthew chapter 26, verse 8. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? See, the disciples didn't see what Jesus saw. They said, why this? What are you doing? Why this waste? See, the disciples are being critical of Mary because they don't see what Jesus sees. And that's the truth. When we give Jesus our all, point number three, giving him your all will invite criticism. Giving him your all will invite criticism. There will always be a critic when you give Jesus your all. Sadly, but truly, in this case, it's the disciples criticizing her for giving this valuable good, this fragrant oil. When we give Jesus our all, there'll always be someone that has something to say. Why give Jesus your time? Why give him your effort? Why give him your tithes, your money? Why give him all this stuff? You could, you could put it to better use. I'll tell you, when I was early on in ministry um, and I was interning with Patmos, I literally would pay to do ministry and I would get phone calls from friends back home and be, what are you doing? You're not going to have a real job. You're just going to keep doing what you're doing. Like you're wasting your time. Like for real, when are you going to like do something legit with your life? Really? And they would say this. I'm like, um, <laughs> I don't know how to say this, but I think I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, but the point is, even our close friends can be our greatest critics when we give our all to Jesus. This was the case. This was the disciples criticizing this woman for giving the Lord her all. People might criticize us for, for giving the Lord are all, and they might see that's a dumb decision. Why would you do that? You're wasting your life. You're wasting your time. But what the critics say is dumb. Jesus says it's blessed. And he tells us this in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And the Beatitudes, talking about uh, basically the heart behind a relationship with him and the credentials for kingdom living. And he says... In Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, he said, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He said, when people are saying bad stuff about you because you're giving the Lord your all for my name's sake, he says, don't worry about it. You're going to be blessed in the kingdom to come. What they say is dumb, I say is blessed. And it was funny, uh, the last barbecue, Luke and I were talking, Luke Kibler, um, and he had posted something on Facebook and some like acquaintance of his um, responded to it. And I don't even think his response had anything to do with uh, Luke's original response. Uh, but anyways, he basically bashed him for having a Bible college degree. <laughs> and he said, what a waste of time. Like, what is this Bible college degree going to get you? And Luke's like, it kind of hurt, you know. And me and Luke were talking afterwards and we're like, we'll see what's a waste of time when Jesus comes back. And this guy's like, <laughs> yeah, you won't be saying that you wasted your time, Luke. This guy probably will. Uh, but anyways, uh, the point is that we're, when we're living for the Lord, when we're doing things for Jesus, when we're sacrificing for Jesus, there's always going to be critics. There's always going to be someone that tries to beat us up and kick us down. And this should be expected because Jesus told us to expect this. He says, don't be surprised when the world hates you because it hated me first. And if you're living for me, there are going to be people that hate you or criticize you or think the things you do are dumb for the Lord. Mary, being criticized by the disciples, nevertheless, this was 
an admirable thing. The disciples continue on in verse 9 and they say, For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. They see a better purpose for the oil. Just as other people will see a better purpose for the time, the effort, the, uh, the service, the, the finances, whatever you are sacrificing to the Lord, that outsider is always going to see a better purpose for it. You could be using this uh, uh, for, for a much better purpose. Like, why are you going to church? You know, there's football on today, right? There, there's football on today. It started at 10 o'clock. We got football. It's Sunday. It's Sunday's football day. Well, why are you going to church on Sunday? It's football day. You're wasting your time. Why are you serving in that church? Why are you spending? Are they like paying you to come to the church? Then why would you come to the church? And people will make up all these different things and try to beat you down and criticize you and say, man, you are wasting your time, that time, that effort, that energy. It could have been more used or better used somewhere else. This is the disciples that are saying that. But we see in John chapter 12, the same story. This is primarily one disciple, okay? One disciple is pointed out. I bet you can guess who it is. In John chapter 12, Verse four, same, same story, the anointing at Bethany. Verse four, it says, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and used it to take what was put in it. See, be careful when people criticize you for giving your all to Jesus. It's very likely that they want something from you. They want something from you. It could be time. It could be, uh, you know, how, how, how misery loves company. Why do the church thing? We could go to the bar together. Why, why are you trying to be sober? It's so much more fun to continue to use drugs. Why do you go to the church and try to stay uh, abstinent? There's so many girls out there and they'll say all these different things to try to convince you to break this covenant relationship that you've made with the Lord. But almost every time it's because they want something from you. Judas was trying to get something from it. He's trying to get something from the situation. Why waste it there? You could have given it to me. He doesn't care about the poor. He cares about himself. He was the treasurer of the Lord's money, which will come up here in a few verses. Remember that. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 10. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. See, what others see as, as a waste Jesus sees as precious. Jesus sees it much differently than the disciples see it. He sees this as this admirable thing. We can't worry about what everybody thinks. We can't worry about the critics, especially when it comes to purposing to please God. Paul says, if I, if I purpose to please man and not God, then uh, I'm not really acting like a Christian, in other words purpose to please God, not man, regardless of what man has to say about it. Because these things, sacrificing to the Lord, living for the Lord, it pleases God. He looks at this, look, for she has done a good work for me. This was a good work. But Mary wasn't focused on the disciples. She was focused on pleasing God. She felt compelled to do this thing and God honored her for doing this very thing, making the sacrifice. Look what happens, Matthew chapter 26, verse 11. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. Disciples, you're not taking advantage of the moment. Mary is taking advantage of the moment. Disciples, you don't understand the words I've been trying to communicate to you. Mary is understanding something that you're not understanding. Today is the day to give me your all. And that's point number four. Give him your all today. Give him your all today. I'm not going to be here in a couple days. I'm not going to be here the day after tomorrow. Today's the day, the poor you'll have with you always, but the today is the day to live for the Lord. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. James tells us our life is but a vapor. It's here one minute, it's gone the next. We're not promised tomorrow. So if we're not promised tomorrow, what are we doing today? 
The Lord calls us to give him our all today. To do everything, Colossians 3.23 says, do everything wholeheartedly as unto the Lord. Don't say, I'll do it tomorrow. Do it today. You have the poor with you always. You don't know how much longer I'm going to be with you. We don't know how much longer we're going to have on this earth. And the truth is, you'll never regret a day that you gave Jesus your all. You will always regret days that you didn't give him your all. But if the Lord asks you to give him something, whatever it is, and you choose not to give him that thing, you'll always regret it. But when you give him your all, you'll never regret that day. You'll never regret that day. That's why he says, don't worry, don't focus on it tomorrow. Do it today. You don't know how much longer you'll be here. The disciples didn't know how much longer he'd be there. Matthew chapter 26, verse 12. For in pouring out this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Mary may have understood this. She may not have. We're going to play both sides out. We don't know if Mary knew that she was anointing Jesus for his burial. She might have known that. She might not have. But if she did know that, how would she know that? Because we see another important character quality that's admirable in this person, Mary. Look at Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, verse 39, it says, And she had a sister called Mary, same Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. She sat at the feet of Jesus. The disciples heard Jesus speak, but they didn't understand what he was saying. Perhaps Mary understood something that the disciples didn't. Why? Like I said earlier, it's one thing to hear. It's another thing to understand. And when we're in the word, when we're hearing a message, when we're trying to hear from the Lord, it's not just enough to hear. We got a purpose to understand. You could come to different church services or listen to sermons online and hear a good message. But it's not the same as, as sitting at the Lord's feet and hearing from Him, understanding Him. What I'm getting at is regardless of, of what I say, the point is, this is an opportunity. Devotions are an opportunity. So many different opportunities to sit at the feet of Jesus and understand what he's speaking to you personally. What is the Lord trying to get across to me? What is he trying to tell me? I purpose to do that even, even while I'm teaching because he does it. He wants to get something across to us personally. But if we don't have that mentality of sitting at his feet, engaging in what he's trying to communicate, not just in general, but to us personally, we're going to miss something. The disciples missed something. Mary, perhaps, may have understood something that they didn't. Now, whether she understands that she's anointing him for the burial or not, there's still something commendable about this. For whatever reason, Mary felt compelled to pour all this expensive oil on the head of Jesus. And she was compelled. She was compelled by the Lord. For the love she had for Jesus, for the love of Christ compels us. And whatever reason, whether she had uh, intellectual understanding or whether she didn't know at all, she did something that the Lord was calling her to do. She's anointing me for my burial. See, sometimes the Lord will compel us to do things that we don't understand. We don't know why he's asking us to do certain things. And it's not important whether we understand or not. The cool thing is, often, when we're compelled by the Lord to do something and we choose to do it, 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 it more often than not ends up being much more significant than we thought it was. It, it ends up being much more powerful. Pretend Mary didn't understand and she did this and she said, I just felt compelled to do this. And the Lord says, you did this for my burial. After this, he's going to say, everyone's going to remember this to the end of time. This is going to be spoken of everywhere the gospel was preached. I guarantee Mary didn't understand how big and how significant this one act of obedience was. But the Lord is going to say, this is one of the most significant acts that any of my followers has ever done. Look what he says in the next verse. Verse 13. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. 
Mary didn't know that Jesus was going to say that. She wasn't doing that to gain fame, to gain attention. In fact, Matthew doesn't even mention her name. The only reason we know it's Mary is because John told us. She was doing this just because she felt compelled, because she loved the Lord. She wanted to sacrifice to Him. She wanted to live for Him. She wanted to give Him her all. And Jesus, this doesn't go unnoticed to the Lord. She had the right heart, the right perspective, the right motivation. And she does this act and Jesus says, man, this is such a commendable act. Everyone that hears the gospel is going to hear what you did. That's amazing. He uses Mary as an example to every believer, to every one of us. This is what walking with the Lord actually looks like. Giving him something that costs us something. Giving him our all, our everything, regardless of the critics, regardless of whatever anyone else has to say, doing everything as unto the Lord. And other people benefit because of her sacrifice. We benefit. Every time I read the story, I'm convicted. Lord, what do I need to sacrifice? What am I not giving you? She gave you a year of salary. I don't think I can handle that right now. But what can I give you? What are you asking me to give? So every time for eternity, this story will be used to compel people to respond like she responded. Look at verse 14. Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. So it appears that this was the final straw for Judas. He's given up following the Lord. Why? Well, we remember he was the money changer. His perspective of the Lord's rule and reign, like the majority of the people, was flawed. He thought Jesus was going to come into Jerusalem, establish his authority over Rome, just like David deliver the people from the tyrants of that day. And because he was the king, he'd have a lot of wealth. Judas, being the money changer uh, or the treasurer, if you will, he's thinking, I'm going to gain a lot off the Lord. I'm going to gain, I'm going to get paid from this. If I'm the Lord's treasurer or I'm his accountant, when he establishes his rule, I'm going to make money. Now he sees this and he's seeing a pattern with Jesus that it's not about this stuff. It's not about a, a material uh, thing. It's about a spiritual thing. So Judas, his final straw, he decides, well, I'm going to get from the Lord whatever I can with this little time that we have left. So he plots to betray him. Look what he says in verse 15. What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? Where Mary was giving the Lord her all, Judas was just trying to get from him, trying to take from him whatever he could in these final days. Point number five, last one. If you're not giving to him, then you're taking from him. If you're not giving to him, then you're taking from him. Judas wasn't given to the Lord. And he was literally robbing the Lord. He was stealing money, as we saw in John chapter 12. He was literally stealing money from the funds that they had for ministry. Don't think that the Lord didn't know this. But in context to us, we have to remember that everything we have, everything in this world, it belongs to God. This is referenced several times throughout Scripture. But let me point you to one. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, it says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? He says you're not your own. You don't belong to yourself. Why? Look at verse 20. For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. None of it's yours. He's speaking of body and spirit, but it applies to everything, every single thing we have. Our wives, our husbands, our children, our friends, our family, our cars, our houses. It's all God's. Don't ever like get in the mind mentality. And we do this. We always say, this is mine or mine or mine. It's all God's. He's allowing us to be stewards over those things. The Lord, he can give and he can take away. And sometimes the Lord has to take away, though he wants to give, because he wants to purge us from greed. Now, Judas, he was all about taking. And the Lord gave him several chances. We'll look at it next week. He continues to give him chances to repent up until the end. But Judas... 
because of his greed, because of his selfishness, he sells out the Lord for 30 pieces of silver. That was the cost of a slave. It was a small amount of money. Some scholars say as little as $25. Others say in the hundreds. Regardless, we're not talking about a ton of money. We're not talking about a year's worth of salary where uh, Mary pours out a year's worth of salary. Judas is selling it for maybe 25 bucks. Like, what the heck? This is crazy, but this was Judas's mentality because he was greedy. And we're going to see this greed is going to rob Judas of happiness. Later on, we'll see that Judas kills himself. He can't bear the weight. He tries to give the money back, in fact. And then he kills himself. He can't bear the weight of his greed. And that's the truth of greed every time. Greed, it robs us from happiness. That's why the Lord says, give me your all. Or give me anything and everything that I ask you for. It's not because he's trying to take from us. It's because he's trying to give to us. Giving is one of the keys to experiencing joy. When we're so self-focused, me, 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 mine, 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 it leads to misery. For Judas, it led him to such a state of misery that he literally took his own life. The Lord asks us to give for, for our sake. And that giving, it can be anything, anything that he asks us to give. But when we don't give what he asks us to give, we will always regret it. When we do give what he's asking us to give, that's an avenue by which we get to experience the, 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 the love and joy and peace that surpasses all knowledge and understanding. He wants that for us, the fruit of the Spirit. But when we're focused on me, mine, the greed, trying to get what we can, we rob ourselves of that, the enjoyment, the fulfillment of this life, and not only this life, the life to come. Judas would be recognized as a man that took from Jesus and betrayed Jesus. Mary, a woman that was recognized for giving her all to Jesus. Now that's the character quality that he desires us to follow. We're either grateful givers or we're greedy takers. And maybe we're a mixture of both of those things. But if the Lord's asking you to give something to him, don't delay, do it today because he's got something better for you. He wants you to experience the fullness of joy that he desires for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the examples, both, all, of you, of Mary, of the disciples, of Judas. God, we pray that we would learn from the good examples and from the bad examples. And uh, Lord, if there's something that you're asking us to, to lay down, to, to give you, uh, whatever it is, whatever we're holding back, um, Lord, I, I pray that you would give us the heart, the strength to do it, that we would respond just as Mary did. We didn't, wouldn't worry about the, the future and what it might cost us. We would live for you in the present today with no regret, knowing that we gave you our, our all today. In your name, amen.